Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, a conservative MP sets the party back at least a decade or two. We'll touch on that. Also, how is this going to change the way we buy food moving forward? And could we see an NHL season, a playoff? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Will Erskine back at the station. He is there keeping us on the air. Liz Russell producing today uh, for the content and such. Both these people have been doing just a, uh, a miraculous job, an incredible job over the past uh, six weeks. Uh, keeping the show on the air and uh, everybody rowing in the same direction. So we do thank them for that. All right, a conservative MP is facing scrutiny for his comments about Dr. Teresa Tam uh, and, of course, uh, the leader of the opposition, Andrew Scheer, conservative leader, interim conservative leader, also facing criticism for not denouncing uh, what uh, Derek Sloan had said, saying that, you know, he's in the leadership race and, and I'm staying out of this. I don't think this has anything to do with the leadership race. I think it has to do with somebody who's greatly harming the brand, and I have no idea why Andrew Scheer has uh, spoke up on this. Here is what MP Derek Sloan had to say. One of the issues with uh, Justin Trudeau's handling of this uh, situation has been his reliance on the advice of Dr. Teresa Tam. Teresa Tam, uh, we sent an email out today asking, does she work for Canada or for China? All right, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Uh, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, doing well. Thanks very much, Scott. So your thoughts on all of this, before I even ask you a question? Uh, Very simply, no. I mean, there was just no call for it. Uh, The statement was absolutely unnecessary. Criticism of Dr. Theresa Tam is perfectly normal, and many Canadians, no matter their ideological stripe, have engaged in it. And that's fine. I mean, we can have discussions, for example, on the fact that she flip-flopped a bit when it came to wearing masks, whether we should or shouldn't. Issues related with the very beginning of the disease, whether we acted quickly enough in Canada. There's lots of things we can attack her on, or we can attack, say, the WHO on, the World Health Organization. But to start talking about things like dual loyalty and whether, you know, whether it has anything to do, she might be a, a quote-unquote spy for China, as some have alluded to, even if that's not what Derek Sloan, one of the Conservative Party's leadership candidates, insinuated, the fact that he left it open to debate and discussion is bad enough in itself. And I know you'll probably start asking me why Andrew Scheer didn't attack it more fiercely, and I think there are some reasons for it. But at the same time, I really don't think that there's any conservative, quite frankly, worth his or her weight and salt who would ever align with this. And those that do should really question their priorities. So that being said, why hasn't Andrew Scheer denounced this guy and instead saying that, you know, he's a leadership candidate and he's not getting involved? Right. Well, he did denounce it in the sense that he used not necessarily his own point of view, but the party's point of view that they just don't accept thinking like this. But why he didn't go into it a bit stronger Yes, I think in the end he ultimately should have, but I think there are some logical reasons why he didn't. One of the more obvious ones is that he is the outgoing, uh, excuse me, the outgoing Tory leader right now, which means that he's really just a caretaker in this role at, at present, and I guess he just does not feel the need or temptation to weigh into this very heavily. The other thing as well is that Derek Sloan is actually a candidate for the Tory leadership race, as I said earlier, which means that he is running for the job that Andrew Scheer currently holds right now, and based on the fact that the leadership race has been delayed due to COVID-19, he will be leader of the party, outgoing leader, for much longer than he actually expected. So I think when you look at that, you can sort of say that, well, Derek Sloan is not an ally of his, naturally. And for that reason, he doesn't necessarily have to come out and strongly go after someone in a role and position that he knows he has to fill for the time being, but he knows that he's going to leave pretty shortly. And as well, I don't think he necessarily strongly cares to get to wade into issues like this, even though, yes, he is the opposition leader, and yes, he is paid to do that sort of role, because I think he probably feels in his own mind, and I haven't spoken to him directly, obviously, that it really should be up to whoever the party chooses as its new leader to make that choice. 
Whether you agree or disagree with anything that I've said there is certainly up for debate, and I'm sure we'll talk about it. But my sense is that there are a whole series of intangibles as to why Andrew Scheer didn't wade into this more strongly. And from his standpoint, you can certainly understand it. From a general standpoint, maybe not. I see your point, Michael, but in the end, and you use the word caretaker, he is the caretaker of the brand until a new leader is selected. And I don't know, my thoughts is this guy has just set the party back 25 years. So how every single conservative can't be greatly concerned that this person is speaking for their party, you know, I, I, I don't know how you can let this go. I mean, again, shouldn't the conservative party get together and at least make a statement on this and say, and give it to Andrew Shear and say, hey, stand up and read this? I mean, you know, again, this sets the party backwards in a time when it should be moving forward. And, and I can't think that this does the brand any good whatsoever. Well, it doesn't do the brand a lot of good. I'll go that far. But does it set it back 25 years, to use your example? No. This is exactly what people don't like about the Conservative Party, though, Michael. This is your grandfather's Conservative Party. This is the grandparents' Conservative Party. Derek Sloan is not going to become leader of the Conservative Party. You can put your money... Then they should stand up and kick him out right now. Why do they not do that? Let him run. I, I do not believe in throwing people out for making foolish statements. If they make... If they make direct attacks against one another or bring out personal innuendo that cannot be proven. Let me ask you this then. They, should there be some sort of racist comments, then fine. But this was just stupid. And stupid but, comments doesn't necessarily mean you get turfed out of a party. I find that to be, I don't think that's the right way to handle things. Okay, let's find a happy medium. At least, at the very, very least, should the Conservative Party of Canada not issue a statement firmly condemning this? Sure they should, but that's up to them. It's up to them if they wish to do it. I'm not a member of this party. I'm not part of this party. I'm not an MP. I'm not a leadership candidate. I'm not anything. But certainly as an outsider, yeah, I think they should. How how do you think other conservatives are reacting to this? Why are they not speaking up? I, well, I know a couple actually, of rookie MPs have, but why is the rest of them not speaking up? Well, that's not true. If you actually look around social media, there are some conservative pundits and thinkers like me who have spoken up. So certainly that area has been covered. Of the leadership candidates, no, you're quite right. I haven't at least seen either Peter McKay or Aaron O'Toole or their campaign say much of anything. But again, that's not to say that they won't shortly. Remember, a lot of these things are on hold right now, and the leaders are not really hitting the ground, meeting with people, and doing things that you would normally have during a leadership race because of what we're facing in the coronavirus pandemic. So I get that part of it. But should they eventually issue some sort of a statement on behalf of their respective campaigns or on behalf of the Conservative Party, if they wish to go further than that, which condemns it? Yes. And if they haven't done anything as of yes, I would assume that probably in the next day or so, they will draft something and release it. And if they choose not to, well, then that's open for debate in itself. Uh, is this what happens when you don't pick a new interim leader and let the person who lost continue with the ball? Not necessarily. Um, I, again, I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that Andrew Shear probably feels that he was kicked to the curb pretty badly. He knows what it feels like to deal with controversial issues, either spoken or said by someone associated with his party, running for his party, or things that he himself said. He's had, unfortunately, way too much experience at it for a very short period of time, which is only several years. Remember, he only became Tory leader in 2017, so it's, it's not even three years in total. But at the same time, I could also understand where he probably feels that I've done more than enough. I was really supposed to be heading on my way around June 27th. It looks like it's going to be much longer than that. And he probably doesn't want to get as fully involved as, well, anybody else in his position normally would. Again, whether it's right or wrong, there's lots of pros and cons to what he has done here. But from a personal standpoint, I think most people can appreciate the fact that he just doesn't want to wade into something that he's probably waded into so many times that he's just sick and tired of it. It's not necessarily justified. But again, the Conservative Party decided almost unanimously, or maybe unanimously, I don't, I'm not sitting in front of the, the actual count that happened, but I think the caucus did unanimously state that he would remain the interim leader in that standpoint. 
So at the very least, he came out and said that positions like this and comments like this are not acceptable, but he should have been much more firm and he should have been much stronger. That part I understand. But again, I get why he's not doing it. Uh, you said there's the pros and cons to this. I can only see the cons. What's the pros to this? What, what, what advantage is this to the party not addressing this now? It's nothing to do with that. Him. Pros and cons for him speaking out because... Oh, for personally, see, because, yeah. Because, yeah, because personally, right. Scott, he's... Because he's out, yeah. Sometimes he's spoken out, and guess what? It's backfired. I don't think yeah. he feels like doing it again. But it's right. just a guess on my part. Now, that being said, Michael, with what you brought up, should he be replaced? Should Sheer be out as interim leader? Should somebody just be installed until this, because, you know, until the whole new leadership uh, campaign continues? No, not really. Not over this. Because it, it, one way, I just don't think that this is going to, quote, unquote, set the party back, whether it be one year, five years, or 25 years. It's just, again, there's unfortunately going to be fringe party candidates who will run for every single political outfit. We've always seen it. In some instances, they're talked out, as you suggested. In other instances, they just run the course of the leadership campaign, and, you know, they, they basically disappear after all is said and done. I think what will happen is Derek Sloan will be dealt with probably by the new leader of the party, whenever that person is chosen, at that time based on what he said now. So that's when I think he will get his comeuppance, so to speak. But in the meantime, no, I think Andrew Shear's fine in his role. Why would he have even done this at this point? Because once the leadership campaign was postponed, delayed, uh, all of them kind of stayed silent and, and just let, uh, you know, uh, Sheer handle the whole COVID-19 thing. So why would he even speak up now when we've heard very, very little, nothing really from the other candidates because it's all been put on hold? It's a good question. I mean, again, that's something that would probably be better posed to him than me, but I can only assume, based on the fact that he's running well behind the two leading candidates, that being Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole, he probably decided to put something out and basically create a little bit of controversy for himself. It may be something that he personally believes, for all I know, or it could be something that he just wishes to spin, put out as a trial balloon and see what happens. I'm not really actually sure what his rationale was, but I think it's actually very simple to say that he just wanted to attract attention to himself. (laughs) There's no question that he did. Yeah. Well, we hear from, you know, the other candidates, O'Toole and McKay have been quite silent through all of this because obviously we everybody wants to be seen as rowing in the same direction. Will we now hear from other candidates as a result of this incident? I think if there's there's enough of a furor, and I think there has been as of late, The chances are they will. I mean, as I mentioned before, it's up to them to make that choice. But issuing a statement, even if they only simply issue it on social media or as a press release or something of that nature, would probably be enough for most Canadians, and I certainly think it would be enough for most Conservative Party supporters, to at least show that in, you know, that in McKay's case, in O'Toole's case, or in the other candidates who disagree with it, in their respective cases, that they're just not going to stand with this sort of statement. Again, I don't think Derek Sloan has to be turfed out of the party for this, but I think that basically people should, one, be interviewing him far more frequently than they are right now. Very few people have either, A, gone after him to to sort of pick up an interview or even had the chance to interview him. For all I know, he's laying low. I have absolutely no idea. I know that he did obviously come out very briefly to say something, but it was just sort of to confirm what he initially said in his Facebook post, that video that you played a little piece of. But I think that really, in the end, ultimately, it's his call whether he wants to keep speaking out about it or leave it as such. And I think that the leadership candidates also have to do the same thing. They have to decide whether they're going to make a statement that a fringe candidate said and tried to attach themselves to it, condemning it, which would be the right thing to do, but also giving it more credence, which is exactly what they don't want. They basically want this issue to disappear, not stick around. Or they'll just basically try to wait it out and for a little bit, hope that some other issue eventually replaces it, which is often what happens in the news cycle, and move from there. We'll see what happens. Uh, that being said, I remember when Kelly Leach and that whole issue came out, the, the party was pretty quick to denounce her. I remember Ron yeah. Ambrose had situations like this during her term as interim leader. They sure. seem to deal with this. Why not Andrew Scheer? And again, I, I know what you've said before about his own personal reasons, but yeah. isn't that his duty? 
I don't know. I don't know if it's necessarily his duty. I mean, are you saying that if I were in the role, would I have been? Would I have thought that was enough? The answer is no. I would have said a lot more. But that's me. Yeah. Would would ten other people in that role would they have handled it the same way? Probably not. But they would have had ten different responses to it. In the end, ultimately, the Tory caucus decided that Andrew Scheer would continue in this role until a new leader was chosen, and it was just left at that. So whatever issues came up, he would handle accordingly. We're in very unusual times. A lot of strange things have obviously happened. You know, no one obviously expected this pandemic to come about or this deadly virus. And for that reason, everything has been sort of delayed. I guess in his mind anyway, that because it's an extended period of time, he probably feels, this being Andrew Scheer, as the quote-unquote caretaker of the party, the word that I use, he probably feels that he has to defend the party brand to some degree, defend conservatism to some degree, defend his own point of view to some degree, but not have to wade that deeply into the issue if he wasn't the outgoing Tory leader. If he was still the permanent, full-time, you know, continuing well past this year, that sort of a leader for, the political, for this political party, my guess that his comments would have been very, very different. Again, I'm not justifying it, but I sort of understand what's happened. All right, last question, Michael. What do you think is being said in the conservative war room today? I don't really know. I mean, I think the war room, which right now is made up mostly of Andrew Scheer loyalists, are probably mixed, if I really had to guess. And I haven't obviously taken a poll. I'm sure some of them were probably happy that, well, at least he said something. That's fine. We'll move forward. And I'm sure there are other people lined with him who had probably wished that Andrew Scheer had something, said something more definitive and spoken more strongly and more firmly on the issue and either promptly condemned Derek Sloan for his statements or just tossed him out of the party completely. You're always going to have a mixed opinion, even in a, in a political war room. Not every person who's there, not every talking head, not every strategist, not every communicator, thinker, etc. They don't all necessarily agree on everything. Just because they're in one controlled area doesn't mean they're all automatons and they all think alike. That's not how it works. But I would imagine that amongst conservative activists in the war room, much like conservative activists throughout Canada, there's a mixed opinion. I think most of us would have preferred a stronger opinion or at least a str- or stronger measures against the statement that Derek Sloan made, because as you correctly said, it, it's a statement that unfortunately attaches itself to the brand. And it's not something that conservatives right now or ever, quite frankly, want to have attached to them. But on the other hand, I think they basically realize they're sort of in a no-win situation with an outgoing leader who I think is committed to the job, but obviously only to some extent. And they probably don't know what the future looks like or how long he'll be in that role, because we don't know when the leadership race itself will start again. So it's a very weird situation, but it happens. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks so much. Much appreciated. Have yourself a uh, as good a weekend as you can have, and please be well with your family. You too. Take care and stay safe. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, the Premier, sorry, the Prime Minister had some uh, great news for small business in regard to rent relief. Here's what he had to say. Today, I can announce that we've reached agreements with all provinces and territories to lower rent by 75% for small businesses that have been strongly affected by COVID-19 for April, May, and June. The government will cover 50% of that reduction with a property owner covering the rest. If you are a small business that has been strongly affected by COVID-19 and you're paying less than $50,000 per month on rent, you'll be eligible to receive this support. It will also be there for nonprofits and charitable organizations that are struggling right now. And uh, here's what the Premier had to say as he added on to what the Prime Minister said. We're delivering emergency commercial rent relief to our Ontario small businesses and landlords. In total, over $900 million will go towards helping these businesses make rent and keep people employed. For those who have had their livelihoods impacted, for the workers who've lost their jobs, we will have your back. We have frozen evictions so you won't lose your home. 
And today, I will ask the Prime Minister to work with us on a program to support residential rent tenants. Early next week, we'll be releasing our framework for reopening Ontario's economy. It will provide a gradual and measured approach to opening up. Let's bring in James Rylett, Restaurants Canada Vice President for Ontario and Manitoba, and with us now. James, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, James, we heard the Prime Minister and the Premier mention the 75% help for the rent for small biz. What does this do for the restaurant industry? You know, it, it takes a, a big load off. Uh, the, we just surveyed our members, uh, and uh, 75% said rent was the biggest problem, concern in their, and that they had. Um, they're looking at debt loads so that it continue to skyrocket. And, you know, anything that takes a little bit of that debt load off uh, helps um, and enables them to go back to their landlords and say, we have a plan, let's work on the plan, and let's figure out how I'm going to reopen my doors once this COVID-19 restrictions are lifted. Um, So is this a major help? Were you expecting this? Um, I I wouldn't say expecting. We were asking for it. Um, But, uh, you know, it's always the devil's are is always in the details. But we were very happy that the uh, uh, federal government and and all the provinces across the country stepped up and and brought in a program that that would bring some some relief to uh, some restaurants or most restaurants. You said... You said some relief uh, to most restaurants, but is this going to be enough? What is what? It, what are some of the challenges? What sort of help do you need? Um, well, the biggest the biggest challenge is the debt load. Uh, when you're closed, uh, you still run up uh, expenses like rent. Rent is the biggest one you're running up, but uh, um, elect- uh, electricity and uh, um, other um, insurance, etc. There's a lot of uh, things that, that run up. Um, now, a lot of those costs uh, that were paid to the, either province or the municipalities were deferred, um, and that's great. It, it helps in the short term, but that's also a, uh, a debt load that's adding up that you will have to face come uh, August or September, whatever whatever the decision was. So, you know, it's something that takes off the debt load. It's, it's addressing the, the, biggest, uh, the biggest expense they have. So we're not going to complain. I think it's, it's a great day. Um, we, we've obviously seen a lot of restaurants really adapt to this. Some create even different menus that are more suitable to takeout and such. Has the takeout thing, has that helped at all? Has this helped um, uh, maybe uh, show a, another avenue for post-COVID-19? It, or does that only work in a couple of scenarios? I think you will definitely see some that are uh, that will do more takeout than they did before. Um, I think it, for restaurants that did take out and uh, delivery previously, um, they are um, get, having some level of success. Um, but the majority of restaurants that never did it, that it's if they are trying to do it now, it's it's simply to pay a bill or two, or um, some just are doing it to keep uh, um, keep touch with their customers and keep their brand going um, and aren't really making much money out of it. So the takeout delivery is nice and it's great that the community is coming together and trying to support restaurants in that way. Um, but it no way, no, in no way makes up for the uh, loss yeah. of the in, in dining room uh, customers. James, we've, we've certainly heard governments and, and medical officials and such talk about reopening and coming down the backside of this curve and slowly opening things up again. What will this look like for the restaurant industry? And are you concerned some may still stay away for a while? How will, how will this change things after it does open up? Well, I think we saw a glimpse in other provinces that, that closed down in a staged way um, where they... they uh, put social distancing measures in the restaurant. Uh, tables had to be farther away or ha- uh, every other one closed. Um, uh, patrons had to stay uh, um, um, a, a greater distance away from the uh, servers. Um, you saw it in the back of the house where, where there had to be distancing there too. I, I think we'll see that again. Um, I think you'll see when patios start to open, the tables have to be spread. But, you know, those are all problems that restaurants are, are eager to have because that means they're they're on the road back to recovery. So um, they want to address those. They want the opportunity to um, make those changes and to try and adapt. Um, and that just means they're, they, they see a light at the end of the tunnel.
Uh, and it's great that they can see a light at the end of the tunnel. But but as you mentioned, James, uh, if you've got a restaurant that seats X number of people and now there's distancing, so maybe you can only have half of that, this is going to take a while for the restaurant industry to get back to normal and certainly financially recover from all of this. Because, again, once they do open up, chances are they'll be on a more limited basis for a while. Yeah, definitely. And that's why we're, we're calling for the some of the recovery measures to continue into the recovery phase because in no means do we think uh, sales are going to get back to levels that they were before uh, right away. Um, but uh, so there will be an ongoing need for recovery efforts. Um, but, you know, that's we're a resilient industry. We'll find a way to make it work. Hopefully uh, more survive than, than uh, don't. I'm sure you will see some that uh, just, see the hole that they've dug into that they've been dug into and don't think they can make it and that's that's an unfortunate reality um but hopefully with this help that there'll be fewer of those people what do you want to say james to customers out there of your clients that are you know obviously in in self-distancing mode right now what do you want to say to them as we get down the back side of this curve um you know what the restaurants will be there they'll be there when you're ready to come back um, and uh, they're eager to meet, meet and greet with you. Um, I think we will get back to a new normal. Um, if you can reach out to restaurants and help uh, with takeout days, or we hear people are uh, are buying uh, gift cards for restaurants that are closed uh, just to show their support, or even just positive messages on their website or their or their uh, Facebook page. That all helps. That helps somebody who might be just trying to decide should I reopen or not it it gives them a little bit of hope and it and it shows them that uh, they're a part of the community that uh, people are missing James Rylett's been with us Restaurants Canada Vice President for Ontario and Manitoba let's bring in Bruce Winder retail expert and he is with us now Bruce thank you for the time much appreciated in regard to what's been happening and, and what the and what the prime minister and the premier announced earlier on today, uh, in regard to the seventy five percent help for uh, paying rent for small businesses and such, uh, how before we get into the grocery chain and such, how will this help the small businesses with what has been announced today? Well, I think it certainly offers some help. I mean, um, I, you know, everything I've read and heard is that rent uh, for small businesses is one of the, if not the largest issue they face in terms of their extinction right now in this environment. Um, you know, so I, I know it's going to help for sort of April, May, June, I believe. The long-term question is, um, you know, if government subsidies stop, what is the outcome for these small businesses? Because I would suggest that if, um, unless governments continue to offer a subsidy like this for a long period of time, we still might see a lot of businesses go under. And, you know, we were talking to a representative from the restaurant industry just before you, and you have to think if they are opening up and they're only opening up at half capacity or they have to spread the tables out and have uh, less customers per shift and such, it's going to be a while before they recover. It is really. I mean, that's, that, and that's sadly what they're looking at is they're looking at, you know, let's say we do start to open things up in the next month or two. You're right. It, you know, no one's going to want to go to a restaurant and sit right beside someone. So they're going to have to take tables out. They're going to have to operate at, you know, maybe 50% capacity at best. And it's very difficult to make money still. So unfortunately, I still think you're going to see a lot of small restaurants, unfortunately, bow out and maybe start up again from the ashes when this is all done. For many of us, uh, going out to the grocery store is an outing now, uh, the only one that we get. Uh, in, and it's amazing how life has changed at the local grocery store. How do you think, and we, we've been talking about this with every industry, how do you think the grocery store business is going to change post-COVID-19? Yeah, it's a great question, and there's a lot of folks uh, sort of uh, chiming in on this. But, um, you know, I think the grocery business is going to change. Um, there's going to be uh, a continued uh, need for cleaning. So you're going to see grocers clean more like they are now. You're probably going to see social distancing cues. So right now when you go into a grocer, you're lined up outside uh, six feet apart. When you get in the store, um, when you check out, you're six feet apart. And some grocers have one-way aisles as well to try to minimize contact. Um, I think you're going to see some of this stuff continue for quite a while, at least until a vaccine is uh, widespread, assuming it is widespread one day, you're going to see this. You're going to see, you're probably going to see grocers continue to pay uh, wa- staff higher wages, really because they have to. 
because society has changed the perception now of these folks from sort of everyday workers to heroes, if you will, right? Mm. Um, what you're also seeing, too, is, is less promotions at grocery because grocers are selling sort of whatever they have. They don't need to discount it as much. And, of course, the biggest change for grocery is home delivery. So what you're seeing now, you know, is roughly, you know, some folks say a 20% rate in terms of groceries being bought online. That's up from, like, say, 3% before the crisis. You're probably going to see something uh, net out in the middle when this is over. You're going to see people continue to buy groceries online. Um, What you're also seeing, though, that is very unique, is you're seeing all kinds of other restaurants and third parties jump in the grocery game. So an example is large food distributor Cisco. Cisco is a large wholesaler to restaurants and schools and things. They've actually opened up a direct-to-consumer channel where they're selling wholesale bulk food to consumers, uh, and consumers can pick them up from one of 15 warehouses around Canada. So you're Mm. seeing grocery change considerably. You know, what we're seeing, the loss in restaurants and such, grocery stores are picking up, are they not? Like, apparently, grocery stores are making a ton of money right now. They're making a ton of money because they don't have as many discounts like we talked, like I talked about. They're also up, like if you look at Empire, Empire's comp store sales was up 37%. And Metro wasn't far off from that. That is unheard of in grocery. Yeah. Normally, if you have comp store sales in grocery, low single digit, you, uh, you have a celebration. So if you're up 37%, now that's going to settle down. It already has started to settle down a bit. But they're making a ton of money, even with the wage increases and the extra labor to clean the stores. Uh, and uh, will we see, because a big chatter prior to COVID-19 was automation and self-checkout. Some people strongly against it. We saw a certain change remove it because the, you know, the blowback. How do you think this will, uh, how do you think this will balance out technology as we move forward? This will accelerate technology because um, companies have, have seen the variability of using people, the downside of using people. You know, robots don't get sick. Robots don't call in sick. They don't have a fever. You don't need to give them a $2 an hour wage increase. So you're going to see an ex- a quiet acceleration of automation in grocery and virtually all industries as folks try to minimize the human element. Uh, you talked about how grocers are giving higher wages at this point. Will that continue? How will that affect pr- uh, food prices? Because we know there's a very thin margin here. Food prices are going to go up, I think, um, because you're, gonna, you're starting to see some shortages here and there, especially in the meat area. Um, there's a number of meat factories that are closing down to clean, and that's going to increase the, the scarcity of meat, the price of meat. But you're also going to see these, these wage increases, I think, stick. Because uh, most of society see grocery workers as heroes right now because they're the ones, you know, putting on their armor, going out there on the front line while all of us are safe at home. And uh, it would be very difficult for grocers to go back on that. They would have a very loud um, public backlash if they tried to roll these discounts or these bonuses and wage increases back. Uh, many people have said that once we go back to normal, that things will all go back to normal, even once there's a vaccine and so on and so forth. But you have to think, since this has affected so many people, there can't be much that won't change in retail moving forward. I mean, is are we in a whole new model? Are we designing a whole new model right now? Yeah, I think what you're going to see is it's going to vary by retailer and by customer segment. But overall, you're going to see some permanent changes. Specifically in Canada, you're going to see a growth of online shopping. Um, you're going to see, um, you know, more home delivery. Um, you're going to see uh, there's a certain percentage of the population that has taken this uh, harder than others financially. So those who are living at the margin who work, you know, for minimum wage, they're being, uh, they're being wiped out now, unless you're in grocery. If you're not in grocery or delivery, you're being wiped out now, you're losing your job. I read somewhere that 25% of Toronto jobs are now gone. So there's going to be a large segment of the population that's permanently damaged financially, and they're not going to be able to buy products. They're not going to be able to go to restaurants. They're going to have to eat at home more. Um, there's going to be a significant wave of, of spending that's sort of frozen in time or decreased until, and it could take a couple of years, a few years before this really starts to pick up again. Retail expert Bruce Winder has been with us talking about how this is going to affect retail and the grocery industry moving forward. Bruce, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend and be well. Yeah, you too, Scott. Take care. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Come here, honey. Come on. Come on on the air. It's Friday. Come on on the air with me. Come on. Come on. I don't. Come on. Is I'm that... only going to come on if I can talk to Ted. Ah, Is Ted ah, there? Beauty! See? <laughs> Eileen and I go back a long way. Scott, leave the room. We'll talk for a while. Here we go. See? Yeah, wake me when it's Ted. over, guys. Hi, How Eileen. Are you? How are you? I, I miss you. You know, it's, it. this is really a strange time. What is it like being self-isolated with S. Thompson? I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking it ain't a lot of fun, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, hey you don't ask those kind of questions unless you're getting your wife on the air, pal. <laughs> <laughs> I hey, also. You know what, Ted? I, I've been hearing you uh, do your newscast. Yep. You sound awesome. Thank Just you. Just as good all those years ago that we were together. That's a long time ago. I also. <laughs> uh, I also, by the way, did hear the term snacks. Now I'm really envious. Yeah, yeah, that's a great thing about working from home, Ted. You get Watch the way, the Scott. Apparently the LBs will be creeping up, so, you know. Hey, hey, remember that time you guys had Swiss Chalet and didn't order any for me? Oh, well, there why? you go. It's Going payback. back in time 15 years. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to hear the story. Let it go. All right, you two, enough. i got All a show right. to do. See you, Aline. Take care. Yeah, take care, All right. Ted. All the All best. Right. You too. Bye now. Bye. All right, there you go. Uh, Kurt said he wants to come in and say hi to Ted, too. It's like, wait a sec, this is getting out of hand. Uh, maybe we'll open the show Monday with that. We'll just, <laughs> we won't have any guests on. We'll just, uh, you know, invite the family on. Uh, good news if you're a sports fan, hockey fan, uh, there's lots of chatter in the back rooms about how they are going to have some sort of abbreviated season and what that's going to look like. And now we're hearing rumors floating around Edmonton is uh, on the short list of cities that may see a revived hockey season. I guess we'll all see it, but and really, will they see it? Because I don't think there's going to be any audience. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. Never has me on my on his show, yet he's always on mine. Scott, how are you? Good to see you. <laughs> oh, we, we want to go down that path, do we? No, we've only got a few minutes. <laughs> Uh, I thought oh, I'd be well. talking to Kurt today. What's that? I thought I'd be talking to Kurt today. You know, I'll be very honest. He would love to talk to you because he'd love to talk sports with you. But, you know, again, having having Eileen on, I think that's enough for this half hour. Uh, <laughs> your thoughts on what's happening. What, what are we going to see with the NHL? Well, they are trying desperately to put together, <clears throat> put together a playoff for a couple reasons. I mean, first of all, I don't want to be too cynical and say that they're only about business, although the business of sports is big business. I mean, there are most of the people who play hockey or work in hockey are doing that because they love hockey and they would like to see hockey played and they want to see the Stanley Cup contested. So there is that. But there is also the business side of this. And TV ratings and advertising and all that kind of stuff uh, is big, big, big money when you have the Stanley Cup playoffs on, particularly, Scott, when there are no other options. I mean, if you can figure out a way to make this happen and you're the only sport in town, and when I say in town, I mean in North America, you have an opportunity to attract a whole lot of eyeballs and some unbelievable TV ratings. I mean, you mm. know that even folks in... West Boogaloo, Arkansas, who've never seen a puck before, yeah. who are so desperate for sports, might go, well, I'll check it out. And so, uh, you know, it's it's an interesting idea. And and from what I understand, having read this, and it seems like it's a, it's a real moving target. It's a real flexible, pliable situation. They're talking about having maybe two, maybe four sites for playoffs. Uh, Edmonton being one of them, as you mentioned, Toronto is one of the ones they're talking about. I've heard Columbus. I've heard, I think, Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. One of the two was the other one. And essentially, you would have 16 teams, four teams in each of those locations. It's kind of like March Madness. I was, or, you, know, you know what I was thinking about? Either March Madness or going to your kid's tournament. Kind of. And then I guess you would then move them to the next location. Now, I mean, all the moving and the flying and stuff makes more of a risk. I mean, if you could put eight teams in one city and eight in another, it reduces the risk. If you could put 16 in one, it would reduce the risk. You may not have 16 teams in the playoffs. I mean, I'd say everything seems to be up for grabs at this point. And I can but understand how they're, they're trying... 
they're trying to do something in a very controlled environment where they keep all the players there, they, you know, and, and staff there and such and so on and so forth. Um, you know, but it, but at the end of the day, what happens if one person gets sick? Does that shut the whole dang thing down? It could. It could. And so, you know, I heard a, I was watching a story or a report yesterday that Edmonton's new arena in downtown Edmonton has a uh, hotel attached to it. Yeah. That can uh, could probably host. I think they either said four or eight complete teams in their staff. So if you've got a hotel where you do a full clean of the hotel, everybody gets tested, and then those guys, nobody from the public is allowed in, and they never have to leave the building, essentially, to practice, to play, to live, all the rest. Theoretically, I guess you could do it and trust that nobody's going to test positive for this. The biggest question, Scott, I think about this is, and there's two to me, um, the first one is, are the players going to go for something like this? Because ultimately they have to buy in. I mean, are they going to be okay with a month of basically living indoors away from their family just with the other guys and the other teams? Are, are they going to sign on with this? And the second thing is, as much as we're desperate for sports, are people see we've been locked up and cooped up in our homes now for a month and it'll be longer than this when the weather turns nice and people can go in their backyards even if we haven't had sports are people going to tune into hockey in late july oh yeah i I don't know (laughs) i I think so i think so and i think there's not a lot of a downside to running that risk for for them if they can make it work but that would be a real interesting one because every year we get to mid-june people are like oh come on enough with hockey well, I know these are different circumstances, but we'd see. We'd see how that would play. Well, we see this template used in other sports. Could we do this in the NBA? Yes, absolutely. The NBA, a whole lot easier, you would think, because there's a whole lot fewer players and staff and everything else. And so if you could host eight teams in one hotel in Edmonton, now I'm not saying the NBA is coming to Edmonton, but I'm sure there are other places in the states that have a similar setup with a hotel attached or right next door to an arena if you could put eight teams in one hotel here you could probably do 12 with nba uh, personnel and stuff like that uh yeah i think i mean these things are there are sports that are going to be able to the nfl would be really hard i'm getting myself tied up here the nfl is really hard because just the volume of people Golf, on the other hand, we talked about this before, golf, super easy, you would think, because it's outdoors and spread out, and mm-hmm. you can make that happen. So, uh, But yeah, I, I think if the NFL, or, sorry, if the NHL was to take a stab at this one, and it worked, I think you would see other leagues saying, well, let's then try and jump on that bandwagon and see if we can do the same thing. So how do you pick the teams that will participate in this? How many do you have, How many games would you have to have? What about those that aren't included? There's a million questions, Scott, and like the game side of it, I don't think you can do it as a two out of three because just for the sake of credibility, I mean, to win the Stanley Cup is supposed to be the hardest thing to win in sports. That's what the NHL prides itself on. The tournament, the, NHL, the Stanley Cup tournament is an absolute grind. And so to reduce it to, a, as you describe it, like your kid's tournament, um, defeats kind of the purpose. The, so uh, how you do it, I don't know. The bigger question, which you know is going to create a billion different fights, as you say, is who gets in, because the NHL season was not finished. And yeah. not every team played an equal number of games. And yet, because of the way the NHL works these days with points and overtime and everything else, almost everybody was still in the playoff chase. And so are you going to say, well, if you were out at the time the season ended, uh, you don't get in. Are you going to say we're going to walk it back so everyone to the whatever team has played the fewest number of games, we're going to walk all the games back so anything past, let's say, 61. Let's say the, the team that played the least had played 61. Right. Every team that played 67, 67, 66, 65, 64, 63, 62, those games don't count. And now we'll go with the standings. Do we do it on winning percentage? You're never going to satisfy people. But you know what? Those are things that Gary Bettman and the other people who are paid vastly more than you and I are being paid big money to try and sort out and they can deal with the headaches. Will there always be an asterisk beside this season? Even when we look down the road in the history books, no matter who wins, whatever happens, will there always be an asterisk beside this season? I, 
I would think, uh, I mean, again, it depends on how they do this, but you're going to have, like, coming into the playoffs, I don't know if people can even remember this far back now, but right before the season was canceled, the Maple Leafs and the Florida Panthers were both stumbling their way towards a playoff spot. Neither team seemed to be able to win enough games. They could have, each of them could have pulled away and buried the other one for the play for a playoff spot. Neither one did. So now we come back from a month or a month and a half off or two months off. And all of a sudden, one of those teams gets super hot. Their goalie gets crazy hot or some player gets really ridiculously hot or somebody who was injured is now back healthy again. This could change entirely the narrative of how this season would have gone. And so you could very easily see a team that was great for most of the season suddenly, for whatever reason, they lose their mojo a little bit because they've been off the ice. Or as I say, somebody who has had a player who's been out for the whole season is suddenly back now. Then a team that was very mediocre suddenly becomes really, really good. Or a goalie who was stumbling around finds his game, and now you can't beat him. So, yeah, I, I think an asterisk, asterisks are usually applied to things where there's, you know, steroids or cheating or something else. I don't know, but certainly that's not the case. But Or I goalies that are brought in at the last minute to play for another well, ailing goalie? I, yeah, I think, there, I think there will always be... Uh, a sense that somebody could win the Stanley Cup this year, and they certainly are not going to think any less of it. They're certainly not going to celebrate with less passion, although they probably will have a whole lot less time because the season's going to start about eight minutes after they raise the Cup. Um, but uh, for them, they'll win the Cup and they'll have their name on the Cup. For everyone else, I, I think there might be a bit of a sense of, well, that was interesting, but let's get back to winning it the normal way next time. Hmm. Scott Radley's been with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You'll hear tonight and sports columnist in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated, and have yourself a great weekend. Be well. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. People are ranting and raving about the new drive-thru up at Dave Anderchuk Arena for COVID-19. People are ranting about the drive-thru, giving it rave reviews. Uh, rave reviews my goodness yes um i, I like um uh, a double double uh, uh, a donut with sprinkles and and a nasal swab is that possible and and with a shorter stick though i, I don't like that big stick on the nasal can we do that uh, just pull up please and uh, we'll help you when we can I wonder if through the COVID-19 drive-thru, you can pay it back to the person behind you. Give them an extra swab for me. I'm buying. All right, let's move on. You know, you talk to friends and such and have virtual combos and, and such and, and how you doing, what's new, how you're coping with all of this. And uh, anecdotally, I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, I'm having really weird dreams during this time, a lot of anxious dreams. To talk more about all of this, Nafisa Ismail is with us, Associate Professor of Psychology, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Uh, Nafisa, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Yes, I'm doing well. Yes. Is it common for us to have weird dreams at this time when we're going through something such as this? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the fact is actually that we dream every night. It's just it's a normal process. Dreaming is how our brain um, processes everything that we've been exposed to during the day. But usually we don't remember our dreams because we sleep well. We sleep much deeper. But at the moment, we're just so stressed out, we're anxious, we're worried, we're scared. All these feelings are preventing us from sleeping deeply enough. And with that, with the light sleep, comes um, these vivid dreams where we wake up and they just feel so real. And, and we, we, see, we still feel like we can experience everything that our brain went through while we were sleeping. So that's that's the culprit is bad sleep. <laughs> so so this is completely normal to be going through something like this at this time? Absolutely, yes. So feelings of stress, um, worry, uh, we're scared, we're confused. Um, all these are normal feelings right now. Um, we're living in such a unique situation, right? None of us have ever experienced this. There is a lot of unknown, a lot of uncertainty, 
Um, we don't know how all this is going to unravel, when it will all end. So there is all these questions constantly in our mind. And the pandemic is also a situation that is evolving so rapidly that we kind of feel the need to stay um, informed and aware of everything that's happening. And so we're always online, always um, we aren't listening to the TV, the radio, and so on. And so all these thoughts are constantly with us, you know, and we go to bed taking these feelings and thoughts with us. Do we realize how do we realize how much this is affecting us? Uh, you know, some people say, you know, I'm not fine with it. I'm I'm great. Then we'll have a bad dream. Do we sometimes not realize how much this is affecting us? Yeah, no, we don't realize because on a short term, the consequence is not so obvious, right? But it's when it happens over days, over weeks, over months, um, it really ends up affecting not only our physical health, but also our mental health. And we need to attend to both of these right now if we want to come out of the pandemic uh, strong and, and healthy and ready to, to perform what we, whatever we've been performing before. What advice do you have for us to get through this? What can help us get through this? Um, that's a very good question. Um, because we are all different people and we have all our different personalities, different things are going to work for each of us, you know, but... Ultimately, what we want to do before going to bed is bring that stress level down. Because when we're stressed, uh, this hormone in our body called cortisol tends to be high. And this is what fragments our sleep. So we want to do whatever works for us to bring that cortisol level down. For some, it might be yoga. For some, it might be reading a book. For some, it might be taking a bath. So try to... Try to get to know yourself better and see what helps you bring your stress level down. And it will be important to do that, to kind of shut off the computer, TV, and so on, about two hours before we go to bed. So engaging in good sleep hygiene will also help. So trying to go to bed at a regular time every day, keeping a routine, a bedtime routine will help as well. So bedtime routines are not just for kids. They're just as good and efficient for adults. And if we sleep well, we have more energy the next day. So we can engage in physical activity. And then with physical activity, our physical health and our mental health also benefit. So it ends up really becoming a win-win situation. Sleep hygiene as well as washing your hands. I like that. Nafisa Ismail has been with us, Associate Professor of Psychology, University of Ottawa. Some advice for those of you who've been having some dreams during all of this. It's all part of the journey. Uh, Nafisa, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.